Well, hello, buddy. Welcome to church. I'm really glad you came today. And uh, I hope you just had a fantastic Christmas and New Year. I just want to say thanks. Um, we had I don't know, thousands of people, by far more than we've ever had, come. And it's because you invited people and you made it possible. It took so many people to carry out those seven services. So thank you guys so much. It was just beautiful. Well, we, uh, we're going to study from Luke chapter 19 in just a few moments. So if you brought a Bible, uh, you can look there. If you don't have a Bible, we always have Bibles for free. You can find them after service, and we'll also have it on the screen. Before we look at Luke 19, I want to give you just uh, a few thoughts about something that's coming up. So here's a question that like a church had better ask itself, okay? You need to ask this question. What is the church supposed to be doing? There's a myriad of things that the church can do, okay? And they're all good things. I mean, you can, you can say, hey, our primary thing is social involvement and engagement. Our primary thing is this or that. Here's, here's what we've been asking ourselves for a few years now. Like if we just had to hone it down to one thing, what is it we're supposed to do? And it seems fairly clear as we study the New Testament, those are the books that are written about and then after the life of Jesus, that the church is called to do this. Its primary objective is to make disciples, okay, to make disciples. And this is mentioned many times, but you'll see it when Jesus is leaving the earth after he has lived his life, been resurrected. He looks at his followers and he tells them this. He says, now go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Okay, now what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is more than a believer or a convert. And if, if you're not familiar with church, hang in there. I, I, think, I think you'll understand this. So it's easier to convince people to believe that Jesus existed, right? Or maybe to surrender him. But what Jesus said is don't go make converts. He said, I want you to make disciples. And the word disciple in the Greek is the word mathetes, and it means one who follows the rabbi. Okay, so you, you leave whatever you're doing and you follow the rabbi. So what Jesus is saying is, this is what I want my church to do. I want you to transform people's lives so that they follow me as the rabbi. That they pursue me. That I become the new dominant influence in their lives. That it impacts their values, their ethics. It impacts their dreams and their visions and their past. Everything is impacted as we help create environments where people can follow Jesus as their teacher, their rabbi. And so we want to do that in every environment. So right now, like with the nursery, the smallest kids in our church, we're trying to create an environment where they can become disciples of Jesus in an age-appropriate fashion. And then with the most vintage, mature people in the church, in this room right now, we're trying to create an environment where we can help people become disciples of Jesus. So we've identified three things that we think that we can do to help make disciples. Number one is our public services. So we're going to try everything we can to, we want this to be comprehensible to everybody. So if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're spiritually unresolved, we want this to be a place where you're like, huh, I may not agree with them, but at least I understood it. Okay? So we want to be a comprehensible church. Simultaneously, we want this to be an experience where if people are deciding to follow Jesus, this helps in your discipleship. So that's our first source of making disciples. Secondly is small groups, okay? And so we just believe that in community, we just grow better. It's one of our core values. That If you can get in a, in a group of people who know you by name and who can look you in the eyes 
and challenge you at times and believe in you at times and speak life into you at times, that's the second venue for spiritual growth. And then here's the third and final. It would be what we call spiritual practices. These are sometimes called uh, spiritual disciplines, but they're ancient and and they're individual practices that help us grow spiritually. They're challenging. We're talking about things like Bible reading and prayer and fasting and uh, practicing silence and all of these things that over 2,000 years people have been practicing in order to develop spirituality and discipleship in their life. Okay, So the three things, our services here, a small group, and spiritual practices. So in just a few weeks, we're going to start this new series. You just saw it on headlines. We're going to call it Practices, and it's going to be eight weeks. <laughs> and there's a, there's a whole journal that comes along with it. We've worked really hard on this. But it would be an opportunity for all of us, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, you may be brand new, you may not even know what you believe, or you may be a veteran disciple of Jesus, but an opportunity for us to develop and enhance and practice and stretch ourselves in these spiritual disciplines. So that's going to happen in a few weeks. I'm very excited. I just kind of wanted to stir it up a little bit and get a little anticipation, right? I can see the anticipation. I know. So, but until then, we're going to look at two weeks at Luke chapter 19. Now, this is oftentimes thought of as a kid's story. And I've, I, this is one of these passages, I don't know how many times I've read it, probably hundreds of times. And here's the challenge is I kind of skip over it because I think, oh, that's a great kid's story. Well, I was rereading it just a little while ago, and I was so deeply challenged. And I thought, at the beginning of the year, I want to do two weeks on this. So we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 19. The next two weeks. Today we're going to look at it through the eyes of a man named Zacchaeus. Next week we're going to talk about how Jesus deals with Zacchaeus. So uh, this is a story that if you grew up even a little bit in church, you could join me in this song. Ready? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Okay, see? And all you who didn't grow up in church are like, what are they talking about? Well, it's just one of these stories that we present to kids about this little guy named Zacchaeus and he can't see Jesus, so he climbs a tree. I want to look at the story, and then I want, to, I want to talk to you about three things I've learned from Zacchaeus. And I just never noticed this before, but three things that, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes I read the Bible, and sometimes the Bible reads me. And it's always better when the Bible reads me. And that's how I felt as I was dealing with this. So before we read the passage, I, I want to set uh, the context. So this is written by a man named Luke. And Luke... He's, he's just brilliant if you look at it from a literary perspective. He's going to write two books in the Bible, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, this is what we know about Luke. He is not a Hebrew. He's not a Jew. He is Greek. And we know that he has a medical background. So he's, he's a physician. He's also a historian. And he is commissioned, you can read about this in Luke chapter 1, by a man named Theophilus, who must have been a very wealthy patron, Theophilus says, Luke, I need somebody I can trust. And they live somewhere in the Roman Empire. He says, I am going to sponsor and pay for you to go all the way to Israel. And this is after the death of Jesus. He says, I need you to interview everybody you can. I need you to find all of the original disciples. I need you to find the people that Jesus prayed for, that he touched, that he talked to. And I want you to record as accurately as possible what actually took place in the life of Jesus. 
So this man named Luke does that. Probably with the travel involved, a year or two years in the making. And then he writes the book of Luke. And he sends it back to Theophilus. And he says, to the best of my ability, as a professional, this is an accurate rendering of what happened in these three years that Jesus walked the planet and was engaged in this ministry thing. And so because of that, he just picks up on some things that the other writers of the life of Jesus don't. And one of those would be this guy named Zacchaeus because it's a curiosity. Okay, so that's who writes it. Now, what do we know about Zacchaeus? Well, he's a Hebrew. Okay, it's a Jewish name. Um, but we also know that he's got some issues. Right? Here's what his job is. He is a chief tax collector. Okay, not just a tax collector. This isn't just like he works for the IRS. This is a really big deal. These people were hated by the Hebrews. Why? Because it is estimated, the best of our ability, if you lived in the first century, somewhere between 50 and 80% of your income was taken through taxation. Okay, so all of you who are angry at the American government right now, and you're like looking towards April and you're grinding your teeth, at least you didn't live in the first century. 50 to 80% of your income was taken by taxation. That was huge. So if you're Rome, how in the world are you going to do this? You've got this massive empire that spans across oceans in vast stretches of land. Well, this is what the Romans called it. They called it tax farming. Tax farming. And this is how they did it. Over every region of the Roman Empire, they sent a diplomat. Okay? They usually called them a governor. So we know one of those would be Pontius Pilate, who was the governor when Jesus died. And so this Roman governor who oversaw a region, he would find out how much Rome was going to require. It was based on uh, Rome did a census. And so they said, basically, this many people live here. This is how much you are going to have to pay in income taxes. So then the Roman governor would put it out to bid. He'd find locals who were business people, successful and entrepreneurial. And he'd say, okay, Rome says that our region is going to need to pay this amount. I'm going to put it out to bid. And whoever I think has the best proposal, you win the bid and you'll be responsible for collecting taxes. So what would happen? Well, people would come in with bids and they say, well, if Rome wants this, hey, I think... I think, Mr. Governor, I could collect this much. And the governor would choose his bid. And guess what happened with the money between what Rome needed and what the local tax collector gathered in? It was distributed to the Roman governor and to the tax collector. And so they could make this a huge amount. And what they had is they had the power of Rome. If you didn't pay this, Roman soldiers came and made you pay. So these people were hated. This is an occupying government in Israel. Zacchaeus is a Hebrew man who is bid high, and he is collecting 50 to 80% of everyone's taxes. They feel oppressed. They are angry. In fact, tax collectors were not allowed into church services. Okay? Can you imagine this morning if you were walking in and you showed like, yes, I work for the IRS, and we said, no, thank you. You can go down the street. Maybe one of those churches will take you, but not here. 
That's what they did. They said, these people are so foul. These people have so compromised themselves, they're not allowed into synagogue or temple worship. There's uh, a set of ethical writings by the rabbis known as the Mishnah. You know what the Mishnah says? It says, never lie, except it's permissible when you're talking to a tax collector. <laughs> so you just shouldn't ever lie. The only person that you can lie to and it's not a sin is a tax collector. I mean, that, that's how they felt about them. So here we have our character in this story named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. Let me show you a quick map because Luke is he's always specific. And he puts this in a place and a time. And there's a reason for that. This is Jericho, the Old Testament Jericho. You can read about that. Uh, Joshua comes over as the people enter the promised land. That city was destroyed. So they built New Testament Jericho just about a mile and a half away. Now, New, just, uh, New, uh, New Testament Jericho is here. 15 miles, so to the northeast of Jerusalem, is Jerusalem here. So it's only 15 miles, but here's the interesting thing. Jerusalem is at 2,300 feet in elevation. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level, so negative. It's lower than Death Valley. So here's what made it unique. This was a trade route. See, all of these roads coming through. It was a very wealthy place, and it has the finest climate in all of Israel. The temperature is steady and it has multiple fresh water sources. So what happens is this becomes a very wealthy region. A lot of people in Jerusalem who are wealthy have their second home, not in Red Lodge, not in Big Sky, but in Jericho. This is where you went to get away from the heat. This is where you went to get away from the cold. I want to show you a picture of what Jericho looks like today. This is the ancient city. Archaeologists call it a tell. But then notice all around the edges, what do you have? Verdant green agriculture. This was the place where things grew, where there was plenty of water. So it is prosperous. And Luke is telling us where this is because he says, Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector. He oversees this whole area for Rome. This man has more money, has more power, has more resources than you could ever imagine. There's one more picture. I'm going to be introduced to a thing called a sycamore fig tree. This is an actual picture of a sycamore fig tree. Um, one of the things that we learn about Zacchaeus is this word halikia, halikia, um, and it can mean one of three things. It can mean that you were not old enough, you're too young. It mean that you were not respected by society, you didn't measure up, or it can mean that you weren't tall enough. <laughs> we call it vertically challenged in today's world, okay? So we're told that Zacchaeus is vertically challenged, halikia. He doesn't measure up, so he's going to find a sycamore fig tree, and if you were vertically challenged, there is no better tree to climb than the sycamore fig tree. It's just a little hop up, and then you can climb out onto the branches. All right, let's read the story together. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Remember that map? He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's heading towards his crucifixion. Okay, So he's passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Remember Luke set this all up. This is where he's at. He's in the richest place in Jerusalem. He wanted 
to see who Jesus was. Now, what was it that compelled him? So I got to see who Jesus was. We don't know for certain, but I wonder, this is a small fraternity of people. Okay. These people that work for the Roman government collecting taxes. Well, we know that three years previous to this, Jesus had walked up to a guy named Matthew, who is a tax collector, and had looked at Matthew in the eyes and said, follow me. And Matthew had left behind his business collecting taxes and had followed Jesus. And that had to have sent ripples throughout this community of tax collectors. And so Zacchaeus has heard about him. He's wondering about him. So he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was Halikia, he didn't measure up. He was vertically challenged. He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner because he was so despised. Like, if you were coming to Jericho, this is where the wealthy people lived. You went to one of the elders' homes. You went to somebody who was respected. Never in a million years would you end up at the home of the sellout, the guy that works for the Roman government, the guy who oppresses us. Zacchaeus stood up somewhere in the middle of this meal and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Powerful statement we'll explore next week. For the son of man, Jesus referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Here's three things I've learned from Zacchaeus over the last few weeks. Number one, embrace your halikia. Okay, you remember that word? Embrace the areas of your life where you do not measure up, where you come up short. Here's a challenge. In religious communities, we typically suggest to people that they hide their areas of weakness and vulnerability. Okay, pretend like you're not really an addict. Okay, hide your insecurities. If you, if you just dress up and polish yourself up, and don't let anybody know what's really going on in your heart. We need to look the part of a religious person. Okay, that is so typical. We don't mean it. It just kind of pushes itself out in religious communities. I love that at the very beginning of the story, here's a guy who doesn't measure up. And what's he doing? He's embracing it. He's, he said he couldn't see over the crowd. I'm 5'10". Okay, that's about average. I have a 14-year-old son who's six foot one, an 18-year-old son who's six foot three, and a 20-year-old son who's six foot four. And they just make fun of me. They're like, come here, shorty. And when you correct them, you're like looking right up their nostrils, like, hey son, sit down for a second, would you please? Because this is weird. Right? So Zacchaeus, I mean, you can see this guy. He's like, he's like, Ugh. he wants to see over the crowd. He can't see over the crowd. So what do you do? What do you do when you don't measure up? You hide it? 
put on some stilts. Here's what Zacchaeus does. He says, you know what? There's something in me. It says that I have to see Jesus. That I may be the richest man in this crowd. I may have the job that has provided so many resources. I've got Rome that backs me. These people, I own them. I've got wealth they can't even dream about. But there's something in my life that is deeply lacking. There's a longing. There's an area I don't measure up. And we're not just talking about his height. We're talking about the sense that even though I have everything I dreamt of, I'm missing something. There's an emptiness inside. And rather than hide it, and rather than pretend that he's got it all together, Zacchaeus recognizes that there is something wrong. And recognizing and acknowledging and admitting that there is something wrong with me is my first step to true spiritual growth. If I'm so concerned about appearing that I've got it all together, about making people think that everything's okay in my life or in my marriage or in my work world or in my mind. That's not a place for me to grow. It's this posture of just being able to say, I'm I'm terribly imperfect. I am a broken human being and I desperately need a savior. I don't want to play religious games. I don't want to pretend for everybody and put on a smile. I want to be deeply authentic. One of the beauties of this thing that we call the gospel, okay, the gospel means good news, is that Jesus is constantly interacting with people who are terribly imperfect. And it doesn't bother him. You know, the only people that bothered Jesus were the people that thought they had it all together. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But people who were broken and they knew it, Jesus says, it's okay, you don't have to hide that. I knew you were broken I came for you. In fact, Jesus makes a statement. He says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. And I came for the sick. I came for people who can say, listen, I'm not okay. I need somebody to save me. And and as I'm reading this, I, I, I realize I'm not talking about, you know, like gross sin that's hiding in my life. But there are just, there are places in my life, even after all these years of trying to follow Jesus, I think, I don't want to be complacent there any longer. Just, I don't want to say, hey, that's good enough. I don't want to be content with my dysfunction. I don't want to be content with my level of discipleship right now. So wherever you're at in your own journey, maybe you're brand new or maybe you're a veteran, can you embrace the fact that there's so much room for me to grow? Here's, here's my halikia. Here's, here's where I come up short. It's in my mind. It's in my heart. It's in my confidence. And it's in my integrity. Where is it? And just acknowledge it. Just acknowledge it. Where, where do you come up short? Are you going to hide it? Or are you going to embrace it? And here's the second part. Here's the second thing that we learn from Zacchaeus. Number one is embrace your shortcomings. Secondly, position yourself for an encounter with Jesus. Put yourself in a place where you're going to have an encounter with Jesus. Because once you realize that you don't have it all together, and there's some things that need growth and development in your life, here's the problem. 
you and I can't change them. You've probably been trying to change them for decades like I have. Just try harder. 2019, this is the year. I'm going to get over the hump this year. No, you can't do it. That's, that's behavior modification, and it always comes up short. So you realize, if, if, if I'm not okay, you know what I need? I need a miraculous interaction with Jesus. I, I don't even know if Zacchaeus knows exactly what's going to happen. I bet he has no idea, but he just knows whatever's in me isn't okay. My money doesn't make me okay. I just have this compulsion that I am going to need to see Jesus. And so he does whatever it takes. And we're going to talk about some terribly unorthodox things that Zacchaeus is going to do in order to be with Jesus. He shows desperation. Des- desperation to have an audience with Jesus in two ways. Number one is he runs. Now, we read, we read this and it's like no big deal, right? Because like doctors tell you to run. Like when we see somebody running, we're like, oh. I drive down Rimrock every day and like, I'm like, good job. Good job. <laughs> right? It's always the same people and you're like, yep, yep, yep you're fast. In the first century, and still, if you went to a Middle Eastern culture today, you would never see a grown man run. It is, uh, it would be utterly embarrassing. It would be catastrophic to your social standing. Because you, you need to have the appearance that things are always under control. That you're noble. And that you're dignified. Running is for children, not for adults. Especially men. Especially men who are wealthy. You never show signs of desperation. So what's the first sign of desperation? It says that Zacchaeus realized, I'm never going to see Jesus because of my shortcomings. So I'm going to have to run ahead of the crowd. And can you just picture little guy? Man, he probably has platforms on his shoes to get a little bit of more height. and He's got pull-up. You know, they wore those dresses back then. He's like, yeah. He says, I'm going to do whatever it's going to take in order to find myself in front of Jesus. And then he does this other unthinkable thing. He climbs a tree. There's, this is not within social decorum. Now, I'm going I'm to prove this right now. Okay, how many people in the room, let's say 16 and over, 16 and over, have climbed a tree in the last six months? How many of you? Are you an arborist? Okay. Okay, one, two, three, four. Couple, all right, right there. There's always, you know, I've done this three times, and there's always people in the very top row of the balcony. You like heights. The tree climbers, right? Okay, but that is a very, very small percentage of us. I have, perhaps, the finest tree for climbing in all of Yellowstone County, in my front yard. It is massive. And every branch is this big. And when we moved in, I started to trim it up, and my kids said, Dad, make sure that we can still climb the tree. So I left these big branches, and they can get up so high, I can't see them anymore. Now, all you can do is hear their voices. Listen, I grew up in Booneyville, Colorado, and one of the things that we did is climb trees because there wasn't much else to do. I've never climbed 
the tree in my front yard. Never. You know what? I've never even thought about it until I was reading this text. It's, it's been like 35 years since I climbed a tree. Why? Because I think I know that if I fall, I get hurt now. <laughs> like there's like, yes, bad things can happen. My mom always told me that, but I'm like, you're crazy, mom. It's awesome up there. I just look up. I'm like, hey, kids, don't fall. Bad things can happen. I am my dad. Right? But here's Zacchaeus. This deep sense that something is missing in his life. He's willing to embrace it, and he's willing to do something incredibly unorthodox, and he's willing to risk what little acceptance he has in society. And he's going to run, and he's going to climb a tree because he says, I don't know what I need in life, but I think it's going to begin with Jesus. I think I need a miracle. I don't think I can do this any longer. I, I can't be content with who I am and what I'm doing. It's just this sense of just, like, throw it all out. Like, I need to start again. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. This is uh, the things that were written before the arrival of Jesus. There's a king. His name's David. He's the same guy that was involved in David and Goliath. And um, at the center of their culture is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? An insider, a copy of the Ten Commandments and some other things. But it was, it was just at the epicenter of their culture. But it had been displaced for many years. But David uh, locates it and he's going to bring it back to Jerusalem. And like the, the nation is ecstatic. Like really this is going to happen. We can't believe it. And so they're carrying it. And David is so excited. He's so excited that this connection with God has begun. That it begins to dance. He's dancing. He's the king, right? He's dancing. And he's, I, apparently he's getting hot because he starts taking off his clothes. And he's down to his underwear. And he's, he's dancing. He's just like, God, you're back. You're so happy. And he has this wife. Well, he has a few wives, but he has this one wife. <laughs> She's the queen. And she says, you are an embarrassment. That's not how kings act. Her dad was the king. She goes, my dad would have never done that. You're dancing around there all excited. Get some decorum. Get, show some self-respect. And this is what David says to her. He says, sorry. I'd become even more undignified than this to worship my God. I don't know if that means like you can get more undignified than dancing in your underwear. But he says, I... I'd do whatever it took to be in the right place with my God. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus shows us. So I, I guess the question for our lives is this. What kind of changes would I bring about in my life to make sure I was positioned in the right place with Jesus? Could I change my schedule? Could I change my habits? Could I do some things that people might go, what in the world is she doing? What in the world is he thinking Am I willing to risk something big in order to say where I'm at isn't okay? And I know the only way for me to get to the next place where I need to be is if I can encounter Jesus in a fresh way. What would you risk? If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's a big question. Would you risk your dreams for the future? Would you risk you being your own God? If you are a follower of Jesus, what would you risk? Would you throw some religious decorum out the window? Or say, I just need him.
Here's the third and final thing I, I learned from Zacchaeus. So um, acknowledging your, your deficits, number two, positioning yourself before him. Here's the third thing, experiencing dramatic change. Experiencing dramatic change. Because the thing that's extraordinary about this story is you've got this guy acknowledging his deficits. You've got him doing something very unorthodox. But then the spectacular thing about the story is the richest guy in town who has a fraudulent system of making money stands up in the middle of a meal and says, look, Lord, I'm going to give away half of everything I own to the poor. And for all the people that I have been robbing, I'm going to give them back not just their money, but four times the amount that I took from them. Some of you, your accountants, and you're like, it's a lot of invoicing, right? That's a lot of, like, what in the world is happening? So it's this dramatic, dramatic change. How does it happen? Here's the three steps to dramatic life change. Number one is repentance. Repentance, this ancient word. If we follow repentance back to its oldest origins, in a Hebrew way of thinking, it means this. It means to return to the path. To return to the path. So, uh, think with me for a moment. If you've been outside hiking, most people have, or if not, think about driving. There are times when you're headed in a direction and somehow you got off the right path. Maybe you were following someone. Maybe you're chasing a dream. Maybe you're chasing money. Maybe you're chasing a pretty girl, right? But somehow I got off on the wrong path. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is stopping and going, wait a minute. It's not, it's not where I'm supposed to be. This is not God's path. This is my own path. This is a destructive path. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave that path, and I'm going to return to the, the path that God has for me. That's what repentance means. So it's not just getting here and going, oh, this is terrible. I feel horrible. How'd I get here? It's not just a sense of remorse. That is not repentance. Hear me. Repentance is not feeling badly for yourself, for other people. Repentance is I'm on the wrong path and I'm going back to the original path. That's what it means. So that's exactly what Zacchaeus is experiencing. He's in the middle of this dinner at his house. Jesus isn't saying anything. Think of all the things that Jesus could say. Do you think Jesus would have been justified in giving him the stink eye the entire lunch? Ripping people off. Jesus doesn't lecture him. Jesus doesn't call him a cheat. Jesus just comes to his house. Somehow through the middle of lunch, Zacchaeus just stands up. He says, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. But I'm on the wrong path. I'm on the path of greed. I'm on the path of moral compromise. I am on a path that just isn't okay. I ended up here and I realized this isn't where I want to be. So I'm going to return to the path. I am choosing to repent. But here's the second part. It's not just about returning to the path. It's reconciliation. So reconciliation is this. 
is I have to deal with what happened while I was off the path. So in all these years that Zacchaeus had been mistreating people, his system fraud, what does that mean? That means millions of resources, hundreds, I don't know how much damage has he been, has been done. And so he says, part, part of me experiencing life change is not just saying I'm sorry and going back to work and doing the same thing tomorrow. He says, this is what I need if I want to change. In, in the presence of this Jesus who just came to my life, he hasn't lectured me, he hasn't yelled at me, I need to make things right. See, here's, here's, this is beautiful. I was just working with my youngest son on this the other day. This verse says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed, God removed our transgressions from us. Okay, if you're a math person, think infinite line. He takes your sin away from you, never to connect. People aren't quite as easy when it comes to forgiveness, right? We hurt people. There's damage done. So Jesus forgives Zacchaeus. It's the people he has to deal with. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. While I'm off the path, I did some damage, so I'm going to give away half of everything I have to the poor. There's a man whose life has probably been consumed with greed. And suddenly he's saying, I don't need this stuff. Here. And I'm going to find everybody. And there's nothing even for this in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, it talks about fraud. And you know what the punishment for fraud is? Is you have to pay back the original amount plus 20%. But he says, oh, that's not good enough. I'm going to pay back everything I stole plus four times as much, 400%. I'm going to double it. What is going on here? He's reconciling. He's dealing with what happened while he was off the path. But here's the third and final part of this whole idea of experiencing life change. It's called redemption. It's called redemption. It's a new story. One of the things that I so appreciate about this is you notice Jesus doesn't look at Zacchaeus and go, and Zacchaeus, you're going to quit your job, right? You're not going back to wherever the Romans, are you? Jesus doesn't say anything like that. The industry is crooked. It's oppressive. But Zacchaeus is no longer crooked. The industry might not ever change, but Zacchaeus has changed. Zacchaeus is going to go back to the same place of working. In whatever industry you work at where it seems oppressive and it seems broken, listen, that might not ever change, but you change. And when you change, there's redemption. You can now go about your work in an honest, integrous way. And then he's going to have a new story to tell. Are there going to be hundreds or maybe thousands of these instances for Zacchaeus? He's going to be writing checks. And he's going to be delivering them. Nog, 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 nog. Oh, it's you. It's not even time for taxes. I hate you. Zacchaeus says, oh, no, 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 no. It's a little different visit. I've got a check for you. And you're like, what? You're the guy that steals my money. You got a check? He goes, look at it. That's a huge check. What, what in the world? Like, this is a trick. Like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, well, like things have changed a little bit in my life. What do you mean things have changed? How many times did Zacchaeus tell this story? 
you know, I was the richest guy in town. I had it all. You guys hated me, but the Romans loved me. And I had so much money. I thought I could buy myself happiness. And one day, I heard the crowd. It was making noise. And I heard that Jesus was coming. And, of course, you see me. I'm a little halikia, a little short. And I couldn't see. And nobody's going to let me through the crowd because you all hated me. And I had this sense that there was something lacking in my life. That my money wasn't buying me happiness. And so I did something I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe I did this. I ran ahead of the crowd and then I climbed a tree and I'm up in the tree and I am just desperate to see Jesus. As Jesus is passing under the tree, he looks up at me and he knows my name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. And you guys, you guys were so angry that Jesus would even come into my house. I don't, I don't know what happened. I'm sitting there at the meal. Jesus isn't even lecturing me. And I stood up and I said it out loud. And so that's why I'm here today. I said I was going to give away half of everything I had to the poor. And I was going to pay back everybody who had ever lost anything through me four times as much. So here's your check. That's my new story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of life change. That's the story we get to tell to the world. What, what happened to you? Well, one day I finally figured out I just didn't measure up. Instead of pretending, I embraced the sense that something was lacking in my life and I did some unorthodox things to get in the presence of God. And when I was in the presence of God, my heart was changed. I realized I'm on the wrong path. Now I'm on the right path. That's my story. Jesus changed everything. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that Luke recorded this, this story, this encounter that a man named Zacchaeus has with Jesus. Lord, would we, we choose to be humble enough to learn? First of all, got everybody in this room doesn't quite measure up. And we're okay with that. Instead of hiding that, instead of polishing up our lives, we embrace the areas of our life where we're broken and we declare our need for someone to save us. Religious action cannot save us. We need a Savior. Lord, I pray that each of us in our own way would stretch the boundaries of what we've known and felt comfortable with and we would be unorthodox and we would exhibit desperation to be with you, to experience the miraculous power of Jesus in our lives. And we repent, we realize we're off path, we come to the right and with reconciliation and then a brand new story where that happen in all of our lives. In your name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much. If you need a Bible or you have questions about who God is, head to one of these I Have Decided banners. There's people that will pray for you. You can trust them up front. Be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus. God bless you. We love you guys.